1: Hello, hello. This is Smart Talks with IBM, a podcast from Pushkin Industries, iHeartRadio, and IBM about what it means to look at today's most challenging problems in a new way. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. For our final episode of 2021, I bring you an ode to the holiday shopping season. Well, not just the holiday shopping season. This episode is for all of you who waited six months or longer For your new couch to arrive, and those of you still struggling to buy a car because of the chip shortage. It's all about what's going on with the supply chain, and we're going to look at how the supply chain has evolved since the late 1940s and why we've seen so many hiccups and interruptions over the last two years. No one knows the current struggles of the supply chain better than Jonathan Wright. Jonathan is the global managing partner for supply chain
2: consulting at IBM. And I think now what we're going to see is uh, strategic supply chains, strategic relationships which are brought together through technology, and that that vertical integration which once was through ownership will now be through technology integration.
1: Together, we'll look at the evolution of our modern-day supply chain and explore how today's demand has created something called a bullwhip effect. Jonathan and I will get into what all of this means and the ways technology can be used to help address current supply chain shortages. Let's dive in. Hi, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to meet
2: you. It's a big moment for me, Malcolm. It's uh, it's an honor and uh, it's great to be spending some time chatting to you about supply chain.
1: Yeah, so this we have chosen... uh, a topic that is very much of the moment. I am dying for you to explain just what is going on right now. So I'm, i I feel like you're one of the few people who could actually tell me the big picture. <laughs> well,
2: I hope we can, uh, I hope we can break that down and uh, and get into some detail. But it's certainly an exciting time to be working in supply chain. There's so much going on, and we've got to unpack some some issues uh, to to get to the root cause. I think.
1: Yeah. Well, let's start with, you know, three years ago. No one like me ever thought about or worried about the state of the supply chain. Um, now people like me do, we hear it all the time. Tell me what has happened in the last, say two years to to drive this disruption?
2: Well, again, I, I often say to people, it's like, welcome to 2030. Literally we, we've we accelerated um, the the kind of thoughts and the innovation around supply chain by 10 years. And the pandemic has driven that for sure. Um, necessity is the, uh, the driver of invention or, or innovation in this case. And, and you can't avoid that COVID period because it really did challenge, it put a shock into the supply chain, a shock on the supply side um, when Wuhan went into lockdown and then a, a shock on the demand side when people started buying fundamentally different things than they had been doing. And, and I think you know, that's probably the biggest shock um, to the supply chain since the war in reality, is a supply chain system, right, that has been disrupted. Can you be
1: a little more specific on what you mean by disrupted? So you mentioned that people started buying different things, and certain parts of the world were no longer as capable of uh, producing or moving products as they did before. But yeah. can you kind of drill down on the, on all of the sources
2: here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we were running out of of people, we didn't have of, um, toilet paper, all of the classic things, and um, and we went into survival mode. And and I think you know people rolled their sleeves up and were tenacious, and they figured out how to solve some of those supply chain issues and keep society running um, and healthy. And then we went into resourceful mode, where we started to think about, hey, well, we could repurpose some facilities and make more PPE, and we could take some fashion retailers and start. Creating, you know, new new products. So this system, which has been very stable and just incrementally growing, now we're starting to repurpose things. And then, of course, we've had a rapid recovery. The world has started moving faster and coming back. And that recovery has put demand onto the supply chain at a time where the supply base is not robust, right? Because people are still in flex. And so, you know, really. We're, we're in, a, in a situation where we've got this very complex supply chain, uh, which has is, is started to be out of balance, and um, it's going to take some work to get it rebalanced, really.
1: That, that was my next question. You know, in doing this series with IBM, one of the things that I've consistently been surprised about is the things IBM now thinks about that I wouldn't have thought they thought about. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, did IBM have people who thought about supply chain management?
2: You know, we have all, always kind of worked in supply chain. Um, we have our own supply chain. But I think now it is just way more important than ever before. And this is at the time where we're seeing convergent technology having a real role to play, whether that's kind of blockchain, IoT AI and Watson, which will help us with really understanding the demand signal and the supply signal. So I think technology's got a real role to play, and and we did see that through COVID. We saw those that were invested ahead of the curve coming out faster, being able mm-hmm. to respond quicker, being able to understand their supply base quicker, and the and the exposures and the risks that they had. Um, so you know, I do think you know this is a, a bit of a golden age that we're we're facing now.
1: At what point do we come to conceive of supply chain management and supply chain problems as as explicitly technological and data problems,
2: mm.
1: as opposed to what you were talking about earlier, relationships, yeah. you know, practical kind of bricks and mortary kind of questions. When does this transition to this notion of, oh, it's just another complicated data problem? Yeah.
2: When I sort of said welcome to 2030, that was a bit of the point. You know, I think this has been a huge acceleration, a huge jump forward, and the the interest now of corporations to invest in technology to solve some of these problems. If you go back to the early, early supply chains, we had vertical integration, right, where companies, you know, Ford Rouge, you know, kind of they had – on-site, they made their own steel. They had the whole integrated supply chain, and that's the way that they built trust and collaboration and security into the supply chains. And I think now what we're going to see is uh, strategic supply chains, strategic relationships, which are brought together through technology, and that, that vertical integration, which once was through ownership, will now be through technology integration.
1: Mm-hmm. A couple of questions. This is super interesting. When you said... Welcome to 2030. Did you mean that we are doing things because of this crisis in supply chain today that we might not have otherwise done until 2030?
2: 100. percent It's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly.
1: Give me, give me an example, a really concrete example.
2: One of my, one of my clients was I saying it would take them maybe a month to onboard a supplier. Like if, you, if I've got a, a new supplier, by the time I've worked with them, I've done due diligence, I've figured out their systems and my systems, I've integrated them. It maybe it takes a month or longer, could take even three months. And through the pandemic, um, there was this necessity to bring in the supplier straight away. And guess what? If you really break down some of those orthodoxies of the past and some of those practices and you ask why, 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 you can do it in three days <laughs> straight away. Wow. And, and you can figure out with some technology and with some new processes you can do that in three days because of that necessity is driving that innovation in the process on the demand side you know basically supply chains have always grown up thinking about what happened last yesterday last week last month last year will happen next month next week right and 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 now what we see is um, that's not not the case. You know the last two years are not a good proxy for what's going to happen in the next two years. We've got to really start thinking about what are the drivers that impact demand. The drivers could be are people working from home or not? Uh, you know, have I got uh, you know, another spike happening? Are schools open? Uh, you know, where are we? Maybe even hospitalizations in people movement, weather well, all of these different aspects come into play to really understand at a zip code level, at a SKU level, at a product level, you know, what is the demand? And, and so now we can use AI and analyze the data, refine the data that we have from new sources, not just from within my four walls of what did I sell yesterday, uh, last month, last last quarter. I can now start thinking about all the external data. I can look at social media. I can look at you know kind of uh, data from the state and from local authorities and and use that to actually inform what's happening on the ground and what people's behaviours are and what will that mean for demand.
1: Those kinds of much more sophisticated forecasting models three years ago, we could have built them, but we didn't see the need. Correct. And what you're saying is, all of a sudden, we now see the need, and so we're building. Mm-hmm. The capability was there, but not, but not the motivation. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, absolutely. When you invest in technology, you want to make sure that there's a, a return on that investment, right, that you can actually drive um, real value. And pre-pandemic, from a forecasting perspective, it was less, less important.
1: Let's go back to two years ago as a as a a for example was three years ago. What have you? Who? How many people would have had a deep map of their supply chain back then?
2: Very few. Ninety percent of the fortune, the top two hundred, did not have the picture and the map that they needed.
1: And what percentage now have the picture, the map they needed?
2: I say uh, it's a good question. I, I don't know. Certainly all of the clients that I work with, this is a top priority for them, particularly now as many of them have got exposures to semiconductors and the like. So they're now having to go at much, much more detailed uh, analysis mm-hmm. of their supply chain. So I think they've really had to, you know, kind of up the game.
1: Your, your phone must have been
2: ringing off the hook for the last two years.
1: Am I right? I mean, well, how crazy <laughs> has your... Life been?
2: I mean, I'm fortunate that I I I work in supply chain, and this has absolutely the most exciting time to work in supply chain. And you know, whether it's you know supporting clients with vaccine distribution and working through the issues of uh, transparency and making sure that we understand how, how to do that, through to yeah, just supply issues and um and and helping clients navigate this volatile period. Certainly, one of the one of the positives that I think will come out of this is, is you know, more interest in supply chain and therefore us being able to attract new talent. Because mm. you know, one thing that we have got to do to solve these complex issues is have diverse talent. And I, I personally believe that when we bring in more diverse talent, cognitive, ethnic, gender diversity, we're much better able to solve for the world's most complex issues and we'll see a much richer ability to solve for the future.
1: How long does it take to build one of these maps? Let's say I come to you, I'm Fortune 500. Mm. For one reason or another, though, I have simply neglected. I have the the most kind of plain vanilla supply chain map, and I'm freaking out, and I call you up, and I say, I want to go gold standard as fast as possible. I'm a company with sales of, I don't know, $50 billion. Yeah. Okay, let's assume complex, international, you know, like, not an easy case. Yeah. Um, how, tell me how long, tell me how many people would work on this problem, tell me tell me how you would start
2: yeah, to solve a, the problem. It's, it's actually, um, it's a bit of a trick question, right? Because it's a lot easier than you think. And the reason it's a lot easier than you think is because many of the suppliers out there are already supplying other companies who already have mapped their supply chain. So we work with platform companies that are able to accelerate this journey towards critical risk modeling. We map the tier one suppliers. We prioritize the supply base. And in weeks, yes, weeks, we're able to get onboarded companies a view, an 80-20 view of their deep supply chain. That's 80% of their key suppliers in their supply chain.
1: And people are willing to share that kind of data?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the business model for these platform providers. You know, we partner with them. um, They make sure that we have the visibility, and that visibility is permissioned and restricted. Um, We use that in our own supply chain, and it's an incredibly uh, powerful tool for getting into the deep supply chain. And then over time, we can continue to to build out um, the richness of that data and the modeling. And then you have to start looking at how am I organized so I can use that data um, and use that you know, much more effectively. So what are my internal processes? And that's actually where the potentially the harder piece comes, which is reorganizing and getting people to, to use data in a different way. I have a view that we should all have a virtual assistant by the side of our desks. In the same way that you you have uh, a virtual assistant at home, we should all have one in the supply chain. We can interact mm-hmm. with natural language and we can ask Watson, hey, you know, tell me what happens if, uh, if there's an issue at Malaysia Airport? What are my suppliers are going to be affected? Guess what? We internally already have that for our own supply chain system. But my, my vision is that every supply chain professional will have that virtual assistant. And that they can access the data, but that requires a different way of working. But if we mm-hmm. get that right, we can have a cool, cool environment. We can attract more talent because instead of doing mundane, dull tasks, <laughs> transactional tasks, they can actually be doing value-added tasks.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do you walk me through this. You, you mentioned this little bit about what you do with the information. So I'm, I'm the same company with this large complex business you've now given me this much more detailed accurate map of what my supply chain looks like and we see a problem one of my suppliers suppliers supplier deep somewhere on the other side of the world who this is one of my critical components and i see uh oh it's supposed to come next week i don't think it's going to come for two months yeah what what do I do with that information? How do I react
2: to it? Well, um, back, back in the year 2000, Nokia and Ericsson, if you remember, they were market leaders in mobile phones um, uh, before, before the world changed. Um, they had two two very different strategies here around supplier management. Mm. And um, and actually, Ericsson failed big time when there was a fire in Albuquerque in, in New Mexico uh, at a Philips chip manufacturing point. And so this was all to do with internal processes, how you handle the information. So the information came through that there was a fire, a lot of the chips had got you know soaked and saturated and smoke damaged, and um, and a mid manager at Ericsson had had kind of got in contact with Philips and and had taken an, a risk assessment that, that that the place was going to be up and running quite soon, and there was no major action required, no major disruption. Nokia, on the other hand. Um, had much more collaborative approach and they said no this this could be a real issue here I don't trust that information I'm not going to be too complacent and and literally flew over went down did the risk assessment said no this this is not going to be up and running in any near term Um, and went and uh, triggered some other contracts they had and basically soaked up all of the supply of those chips Um, long story short Ericsson were unable to supply the market and ultimately failed and the company were no, were no longer making mobile phones and Nokia went from strength to strength until another technology evolution um, took place. But the processes and the strategies around how to handle the supply signal were handled very differently. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, yeah. so
1: you had both of them had the same quantitative information. One of them, though, added a qualitative layer on top of that, where they went in and made an assessment of whether the the supplier was was being trustworthy
2: yes. in their assessment of how dangerous things were. Correct, and and this is this is where the organisation design and the the skills and the capability will always be super important. And I think yes, we've got to make sure that we have the right. Um, the number of suppliers and we've got kind of the balance of of de-risking our suppliers by having a number of contracts in place and we haven't got sort of an exposure of one supplier. But then have I got the right skills and capability and a culture that that listens to risk and risk management and and is is absorbing that versus a culture of maybe complacency and and trust which could lead to some some mm-hmm. failure. Mm-hmm I think I think I think you do get some aha moments. Right? I do think, you know, particularly when you start to look into, um, as you say, the deep supply chain map, you start to realize where those bottlenecks are, and, and they're not obvious. They're not obvious because when you start to model out and you start to see where those flows are, you might say, "Hey, I've got I've got too much risk here because of you know one one location." So I think it's when you do that modeling of the supply chain. Um, both in terms of physical flows, network modeling, and the the deep network, that you you start to see those vulnerabilities. And and nobody, the way that organizations are, are set up, you you tend to have people focusing on one category or one product line. You don't necessarily have people looking all the way across. What is the hardest problem to solve
1: on these in these kinds of? You said one part of it. You already said. Well, it can be surprisingly it's, easy yeah. if your suppliers have maps themselves. Yeah. What's the hard part?
2: I think that there's there's two the two hardest parts. Um, one is is the cleanliness of data. Right. It's it's very it's very typical in large organizations for the data to be dirty and, and like oil, right? If you've got dirty oil it it's a problem, right? If you get nice refined oil, it's valuable. And I think the same for data. When you refine it and you clean it and you use it in the right way, it's very valuable. But if it's dirty, um, then it's a problem. I have, you know, a, a client, um, a retailer couldn't understand why they couldn't um, uh, have on shelf availability. They couldn't, they, they couldn't replenish the shelf quick enough. And um, the reason was that in the system, it was recorded as the shelf was recorded as ten centimeters, not not a meter. So, you know, when I send one product, I fill the shelf up. I, yeah. I, I need <laughs> because the the system thinks that the shelf is this big. Actually, the shelf is this big. So. You, you.
1: Wait. Why? That's fascinating. It, how long had that error existed in the?
2: it had been going on for a while. it had been going <laughs> on for a while, and and then they have sort of manual workarounds. But but you know, if you lose that tribal knowledge, you use that manual workaround, then you start to realize you know what's actually happening, and then you find the the systemic solution.
1: And how how long into COVID before you realized that your world was going to explode? Well.
2: Uh, Actually, pretty early on, some of the leaders were coming to us saying, we need help. It was one consumer products company. Um, I remember literally in in that March, April time, uh, we had a project running where we were doing this uh, data-driven demand forecasting, and we created a dashboard for them. Within a month, they could see all of their products, all of their customers, retailers, at a zip code level, and we had a map of where we thought their demand would go in Minneapolis. They were not going to be a significant drop off of buying uh, single chocolates on the way to work um, as a snack because there was nobody going to work instead they would be their family packs were going to go up by three hundred percent because okay. people would be would be gorging yeah. on them at home, so that signal was super important for that consumer products company. Um, a f- food food company to to then repurpose their manufacturing lines to move from singles to family packs, and mm. if they could get that signal ahead of the retailers giving them that signal, they could get the ground truth. Then they could they could proactively um, sort out that was happening in, in April time, but it was new technology and new new analysis. And within a mm. month, they had that new analysis. It was it was an incredible piece of work.
1: Wow, so within a month they had they had reconfigured their manufacturing lines to do more family packs than singles.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, and within a month they had the data and the facts behind it to to help them, you know, um, get the to get the balance right.
1: To, to stay with that example, that over the last let's just say six months, they would be monitoring this and gradually readjusting their mix
2: as people start going back yeah. to work. Well. well and then we come back to this this problem, which is the bullwhip effect, right? And the bullwhip effect is is a real problem that we have at the moment. Um, what is the bullwhip effect? The bullwhip effect says um, that I I can see a demand signal for maybe an extra five units, so I forecast I'm going to sell an extra five units, but my distributor says, Oh, they're gonna sell an extra five units, but they typically get it wrong, so I'm gonna say an extra ten units. So they put that back onto their supply and say, Hey, you know, this company's now gone is gone extra ten units. They say, Oh, we'll make that twenty. And then their supplier says, Oh, they typically, you know, I don't want to go short here, so we'll make it fifty. So before you know it, my five units of demand further down the supply chain is fifty units. Now, this happens where you have a lack of trust in the demand signal. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you don't really trust that demand signal, you always inflate it a little bit. Um, and so what's happening at the moment, we've got problems on both sides, as I said. We, with that that demand signal is hard to, to understand because we don't really know what what the new sort of behavior is. And the supply signal we know is, is disrupted because we've got this repurposing going on and rebalancing in the supply. So what happens now is <laughs> I'm going, hey, I'm going to order 10 not five, I'm going to order 10 because you know I, I'm, I'm worried about my supply. In fact, I might order um, the whole season's worth in one go. I might, Instead of having uh, weekly orders, I might put monthly orders in or quarterly order. And so then you get this bumper bullwhip effect where, oh, they put in a whole quarter. Wow, demand's picking up. I'm going to hmm. double that. I'm going to triple that. So yeah, I'm worried about this amplitude effect that's happening as people start to say, I'm going to put bigger supply points in because I don't trust my supply base. And, and people saying you don't really know your demand. So actually, we're going to continue to inflate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has problems, obviously, because there's going to be some winners and some losers with that scenario.
1: So it, it could be the case, I'm in a competitive marketplace. I might trust my own data, but i don't trust that you trust your data right so i behave strategically and say well i don't know what jonathan's doing yeah. he could be he could be hoarding this thing yes. so even though i only need 5 units i'm going to order 10 yeah
2: e- exactly how exactly. do you,
1: but I don't know, how do you restore trust systemically then
2: yeah you you have to build trust i think through technology um because you have to find those suppliers and those strategic supply points, and you have to start sharing data and actually proving that that five is real, right? And that you, you shouldn't be inflating it. And, and I also need to know that you, Malcolm, as my supplier, right? That, that you have got the capacity that I need. Because if I'm worried that you might allocate your capacity to somewhere else, then I'm going to double my demand onto you mm-hmm. so that you give me some. If I give you, if I order 30, maybe I'll get the five that I wanted. So you start to worry a little bit about the
1: classic hoarding yeah. problem. Really, because I'm not sure I fully understand. So I can see how, on an individual company level, technology can allow me to get to create a far more ac- accurate assessment of what my true demand for yeah. something is. But, but everyone has to have trust in their own estimates in order for the system to work again and for hoarding to be prevented. So I don't how do you get, how do you go from individual actor trust to everyone in the marketplace trusting
2: everyone else's estimates? I, I, I think you have to do it, you know, piece by piece by piece. I think you have to you know, get your own demand signal, you know, clear. Um, you have to build the relationships with your suppliers and make sure you build Trust with them, and and you put technology in place to share information with them. And you know, over time, you you have to you have to just start working working through that. Um, and um, hopefully, we we will start to see the supply base rebalancing um, and settling. Um, the vibrations calming down a bit, the bullwhip effect calming down a bit, and we'll have a more secure supply of product. And then we'll be able to trust the demand signal. The holiday season's a big, a big effect at the moment, right? You know, some of the analysis that we've seen says that that shoppers are more likely, uh, as you'd expect, to to start shopping earlier, right, than they have in the past. And one in four of global consumers have already started shopping, so you're starting to see this early consumer demand picking up. Now, at the same time, we're what we're seeing in analysis is that they're unlikely to spend more this year than they did last year. So that's interesting, or ma- only marginally more. So they're shopping earlier, but they're not going to sh- sh- shop more. So one of the interesting things here is, again, is understanding the behavior. Is Does mm. that mean – I pick up that signal earlier that demand is increasing, that I've got a big, a big economic bounce, or does it mean that people are just buying earlier because they're worried about the supply point? The
1: difference between those two forecasts is huge. Huge. One is bumper crop. The other is same
2: crop, but with very, very different demands on your manufacturing distribution. Correct. Correct. And that's where this more sophisticated driver-based analysis of demand becomes really important and then building that tight relationship with my supply base. So I'm keeping them up to speed as to what we're seeing because any sort of drop-off means, hey, hey, we're not seeing the the massive recovery that that we might Mm -hmm. have been seeing. So I have to have that transparency with my key suppliers to make sure that I don't have the bullwhip effect continuing to amplify.
1: Yeah, yeah. So now that we have some insight into the holiday season, what should consumers do and what should suppliers and manufacturers
2: do a tough one on on customers uh, because you know i i think you know that the natural statement from maya would be you know please don't go out there and and buy too early <laughs> don't don't think there's a rush right but then you say that and then natural thing is people are going to go out and rush and buy things early so you know any any communication uh the consumer is, is a tough message you know i i think the best thing is that that retailers and the suppliers, that they stay really close to each other, that they are communicating regularly to make sure that they can have a trusted supply. As long as there's a trusted supply and that product is available, then we will make sure that we avoid any kind of surge hoarding happening from, from a customer perspective. So I think the for me, I put the reliance onto the, onto the retailers and the suppliers to just work really closely together, to really collaborate, to make sure they're listening and watching the supply signal at a increased level, so that they can really understand you know, where you know where the where the demand is going, um, and that they respond as quickly as possible to that. And then you know, hopefully, there'll be enough product, and we won't have any hoarding, and everyone will have the right turkey at the right time and the right gifts for their family and friends.
1: Jonathan, it's been um, so much fun. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I'm going to disregard what you say (laughs) and rush from this interview and order everything I can in the next 15 minutes because now I'm (laughs) petrified. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe by next Christmas, your magic will have transformed the marketplace.
2: No, really, really enjoyed the conversation, Malcolm. And, uh, you know, just wonderful to spend time with you. So thank you for your time.
1: Thank you again to Jonathan Wright. As I think back to all the conversations I've had here on Smart Talks, I'm filled with a renewed sense of promise. From supply chains and quantum computing to 5G and empathetic AI, IBM and its partners are truly on the cutting edge of technology that will shape the way we live and work. Who knows what industry they will revolutionize next? Smart Talks with IBM is produced by Emily Rostak and Molly Sosha with Carly Megliori and Catherine Girardeau. Edited by Karen Shakurji, engineering by Martine Gonzalez, and Una Marrera. Mixed and mastered by Jason Gambrell. Music by Gramoscope. Special thanks also to Kathy Callahan, Andy Kelly, Mia LaBelle, Jacob Bryceberg, Heather Fane, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, and the teams at 8Bar and IBM. Smart Talks with IBM is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartRadio. This is a paid advertisement from IBM. You can find more episodes at ibm.com slash smarttalks. You'll find more Pushkin podcasts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. See you next time.